my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and today we are discussing Valley Export. Listen, Vienna's history is of oblivion and treason. Its wickedness and brutality, population and authorities are as one. The cultural climate of the Republic has heightened this continuum of corruption by the banality. The banality of evil is not Viennese dirty washing, but its very face. Discuss. Uh, Valley Export is very cool. <laughs> That's right. Valley Export is an Austrian multidisciplinary artist, perhaps not primarily known as a filmmaker, although filmmaking is one of the many things she has done. Even in her performance art, like filmmaking has elements in it. For example, one of her performance art pieces, Touch Cinema, involved her going out with basically a little cinema over her breast and she asked people on the street to reach in through the curtain and feel her up. That's right. It was this like cardboard box, this apparatus with a little curtain on it. Mm-hmm. That was a it was a movie theater over her breast and there is like a 1 minute film that you can find of one such street performance in Vienna where it was her and like a guy next to her speaking into a megaphone. Yeah, come on up, come on up to tap and touch cinema and reach in and feel my breasts to break the barriers between what is kind of sitting and just taking in this stuff and actually experiencing it. The male it. gaze versus the male touch. Mm-hmm. And in the one minute little film you can see of it you can see like the camera's often cutting to men looking at her sort of like, with, like oh. leering like oh hubba hubba a bunch of tex avery wolves and then of course when they put their hands in the they apparatus, feel uncomfortable yeah because they are now having to interact with a human being doing this eye contact suddenly becomes very difficult and she also has another piece where she walked into a art house cinema with pants that had no crotch, so you just saw her genitalia, and she just walked through looking at all of the people to break that barrier between the object on screen and somebody flesh and blood in front of you. Right. That piece was called Action Pants Genital Panic. Now, that sounds like a Japanese pinku film if there ever was one. (laughs) But both that and Touch Cinema were 1968, which Mm. was the year that she sort of emerged in the Viennese art scene. They're both examples of expanded cinema. What is expanded cinema, you may ask? Well, the Tate defines it as, quote, expanded cinema is used to describe a film, video, multimedia performance, or an immersive environment that pushes the boundaries of cinema and rejects the traditional one-way relationship between the audience and the screen, unquote. And Valley Export, she was oftentimes the subject in these performance pieces, breaking down these barriers because the subject as well that she liked to tackle the most was the woman, the way she's portrayed in society, and especially how she's portrayed up on screen as an object. 1968 was the year that she changed her name to Valley Export, all uppercase letters. She was 28 at the time. It was the year that she landed with a splash in what was called Viennese actionism. It was an art movement. Maybe, I'm not sure what the difference between a movement and a scene is, but you can call it a movement, I'm sure. I'll know it when I see it. (laughs) It rejected the idea of art as a sort of physical commodity, and instead Instead, embraced what would sort of later become commonly practiced as performance art. And these artists often practiced these shocking, disruptive, site-specific pieces. So I'm far from an expert in Viennese actionism, but some of the examples include an artist named Gunter Bruz masturbated and covered his own body in his shit and ended up like, you know, serving six months in prison for doing this in public. You bought the ticket. You guys knew what you were getting in for. (laughs) Ah, but here's the thing. 
They didn't <gasps> buy the tickets. Well, that's the whole point of the art. Otto Mule did a piece called Piss Action in front of an audience in Munich. But a lot of these artists, and, and there were multiple arrests doing this, these sort of like scene-specific almost like flash mobs for abrasive and sexually explicit performance art. You know, they were quite illegal, most of them. And, you know, many of the practitioners of the form would be arrested and mm. serve time in prison. But Valley Export was one of the few women in the scene. And she made most of her art about being a woman in the, in the scene and in society at large. For example, in 1969, she had From the Dog File, where she took a man on a leash and walked around with him in public. Yeah, so a lot of pieces like this, I mean, she worked in visual art, like photography, later worked in more what we might call mainstream experimental film. But, but she always, I think, described herself, or at least early on, as like a conceptual artist. Mm -hmm. That And does that fall into the same categories as experimental art? Again, we're just showing our blue-collar perspective oh, on this. We're just two bozos talk, yeah. talking about art, but, but appreciating it as well. A, a little background, though. She was born in Austria in 1940. She was raised by a single mother. She adopted the name Valley Export in 1968 because she did not want to bear the name of either her estranged father or her ex-husband. She wanted to... In fact, where did she get the name Valley Export? She got it, it like, on a pack of cigarettes. Right. It's like, Max Power! <laughs> yeah. I got it off a blow dryer. <laughs> and, you know, 1968 was this Annus Mirabalis where she did these two very, like, influential conceptual pieces. And I also want to emphasize that Valley Export, you look at her art, you look at her performance pieces, you look at her photographs, and she is cool. And I don't mean that to diminish her work but she's one of the artists that i feel you just look at it and you're like oh yeah i get that if you know what I mean. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the times we talk about experimental filmmakers, it's kind of surrounded by, but you can appreciate it. <laughs> so I want to just, you know, make a point on that and then move on. Just that like, if this is not something that you're familiar with, you can look at her art and there are ways into it very easily. I definitely think like her, like as a physical presence is very important in some of these pieces. I mean, she does have, I mean, you describe her as cool. I mean, yeah. she does have a certain steely gaze to mm -hmm. her. Like that photo of her in genital panic, like the famous photographs from that event she's like holding a machine gun and like sitting yeah, back in a chair with her vagina out like, yeah. yeah she does look very cool and very like and you know you can imagine you can imagine what an odd and uncomfortable experience it would have been like for the people taking part in the touch cinema art exhibit you know because, you know, she's coming out like this would have been at a time of like great sexual liberation around the globe, which was also the, the sexual revolution was also a period of, you know, great objectification of women, you know, the Playboy Bunny era. Mm. So, like, imagine, you know, it's it's her who's in charge of the objectification, not Hugh Hefner or somebody. Yeah. And imagine imagine she's not necessarily there to, like, enjoy it. She's there to look at you looking at it. It's mm -hmm. not it's not about your pleasure. It's about her. Well, looking at your pleasure. She's in control of the right, situation or right. taking control back from these kind of objectifying things. Now, her body is important in a lot of her artworks. I mean, made two feature films as well as a longer television movie and a couple of short films for anthology films. If you go on Letterboxd or you go on IMDb, you'll see a lot of films that are short films that are sort of extensions of gallery work. Yeah, that they're basically oftentimes documenting just the performance. Even though that the ones that we'll be talking about today, they do exist like separate, that they're like not in the moment of a crowd watching them as it happens. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of somewhere between or, or like, you know, we did an episode long ago about Carolee Schneeman, another, you know, conceptual artist who did a lot of pieces about like feminist body politics. Mm -hmm. And 
And in those, like those short films, most of them, aside from Fuses, really were like just the performance, just a documented performance. But like these Valley Export short films often sort of use the cinematic apparatus or use the gaze of the camera as part of the effect. So, for example, I don't know if you watched Remote Remote from 1973. I did. So What a painful movie. My God. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the whole point of it, which is just Valley Export sitting there and cutting off the cuticles around oh, her fingers. I hate even hearing it. It's so, <laughs> it's so unpleasant. So, yeah, she's sitting in front of a police photo of these two children who were sexually abused by their parents. And in front of this photo, yeah, she's cutting her cuticles and she's got a big bowl of milk under her. Yeah. And, you know, the placement of the camera, the movement of the camera, the close-ups, the long shots are very deliberate. And it's supposed to visualize a common theme in some of these movies, which is that time is not necessarily linear. You know, the trauma of sexual abuse, for instance, has its own timeline that runs parallel or, or at least independent from regular linear time. But most importantly... It's for the audience member to feel the pain that she is giving to herself as she cuts through her cuticles with a box cutter. And mission accomplished, if you ask me. I because, felt the pain. Because, <laughs> like, viscerally, you see that and you understand what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And that you will have a reaction to it as opposed to just sitting there passively. And when she puts her fingers that she's cut into that milk, you see the blood intermix with it. That, like, it's not going away. It's there and it's present. And just putting it in this liquid, which could be representative of any kind of sexual fluids, that it, I'm it's I'm thinking there. of a few right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. There's another piece called Hyperbulia from 1973. <laughs> Wait, is this a August Underground short you sent me, Will? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... Now, I wasn't quite sure what was going on in the short until I read up on it. Right. Yeah, because I feel that if you just watch it, you're going to be like, huh? What, what, what's happening? Right. So she's there she's nude and she's in front of like a brick wall in a basement somewhere and she's like seems to be navigating a sort of obstacle course yes and she's like pulling back away from it and it's because there are wires everywhere that are giving her electrical shocks Mm -hmm. and the point of it is like you get electrical shocks but she's going to continue to crawl through it until she reaches the end where that will not happen. And it's anymore. an, yeah, an overcoming of the pain. You yeah, know? that's what hyperbulia oh. means excessive will or drive to do things. So, hey, here's another short that I quite liked from the same year Man and Woman and Animal. This is, Uh-oh. it's a bit of a saucy one. You're going to want to lock up your, your kids for this one. It's her in a bathtub with the, you know, the shower nozzle. You can imagine what she would do with the shower nozzle and clean a yourself off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Nothing else. And, you know, it's a film about the independence of female sexuality. Female sexuality independent of any man. Mm -hmm. Now, you may hear this and say, I've seen stuff like that before, but... I can imagine in the 60s and early 70s, you know, this would have been... This was controversial stuff. Yeah, it was quite it was quite novel at the time. I mean, if you look at all of her performance pieces, and she has a lot of them, mm. for that period of time, she was using her body. There was one where it was just her rolling around in broken glass. Yeah. So it's all kind of in that vein. I do think this stuff ages pretty well, though. Because, I, do, I do as well. Because, like, you know, the female body, it's, it's not like society has come to terms with it. No. I <laughs> I mean, you know, a full 20 years after this, like Annie Sprinkle was doing that performance piece where she would like, like have her cervix open on stage and she would invite people to like 
come and look at it mm-hmm. uh, you know like like this and that so, was shocking at that, that time that was well. shocking at that time exactly yeah. and like you could do the same thing now and well frankly it would probably be even probably shocking all over again now because of you know there have been uh, whole new discourses and whole new i don't think there should be sex in movies will <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. it's a it's a different time and something like this like like the stuff isn't dated mm-hmm. is is my point yeah and it's still powerful you can still watch it and be like wow i can't even imagine what it would have been the experience of being there as well yeah but we're a movie podcast will don't we have movies to talk about why you don't think man woman and animal is a movie <laughs> yeah you know what you're right it's, pretty, it's a movie pretty cool movie I mean, feature films with narratives characters i can hold on to uh, well she made two feature-length narrative films as well as a tv film called mention frauen from now, 1977 i watched invisible adversaries and I watched her TV movie, which is, I believe it translates to human women. Okay. I watched The Practice of Love, which was her second and I think final feature-length film. Nice. We cover all the bases. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's let's start with uh, her TV movie. So her TV movie, which she did make after Invisible Adversaries, is interesting because she's using a lot of techniques that she kind of did in that, but she has more of a narrative that you can grasp onto, even though it's very fractured in the way that it's presented. It's basically four women are in a relationship with one man. So it's like one man, he has a wife and three mistresses. Mm -hmm. First of all, what are you doing, man? Yeah. You mad where, man. Where do people find the time is my question. <laughs> and some of his mistresses have gotten pregnant. And you see this through all of the kind of perception of how you would view these things. She's constantly shifting your attention. And like you see it in adversaries as well, which is playfully like for example there'll be a split screen they're having an argument but the dialogue of the man has been dubbed into the woman and she's lip syncing to the man's dialogue mm-hmm. or there'll be almost a persona style like people s- facing each other or, or they're like striking poses and they're, and they're nude but they're having very kind of emotional conversations mm-hmm. so it's like this high art but then you filter it through oh these are more mundane things that you talk about mm-hmm. so very fun also she was one of the first conceptual artists to deal with what television does mm. and the way that people watch it. So like a lot of the flashbacks or imaginary moments in the story are shown on a TV that then the camera is filming. So you, I don't think you realize it unless you know like, oh, these TVs are blue and it's just like the film cameras filming the television. And that's what indicates that this is something either not real or that happened somewhere else. Yeah. Well, the obsession with like the TV image and the mm-hmm. recorded image, you know, circulates through her films. One of those early short films is called Facing a Family from 1971. Yeah, that's the one where it's like the first time that they say artists dealt with how television affects, you know groups of individuals right and in that one like the family is sitting at a table or you know sitting on a couch like watching tv but they're watching you and then you're Mm. staring back at them and it's a sort of meditation on the gaze etc and so this tv movie i think it's kind of fascinating in that it's doing a lot of kind of conceptual ideas that they are this one scene like very playful but also emotional and she finds a way to weave a narrative and have the connections that adversaries struggles with at sometimes mm-hmm. and that like i don't know if it was working in the tv format which let's be honest this is european television so it's filled with duty and there's <laughs> no kind of you know the limitations you would expect with television and she finds a way to just kind of 
even have it reach a very satisfying, well, satisfying, it is emotionally complex way. Did you feel sort of less, and you know, a movie like Invisible Adversaries is purposely distancing. Yes. Did you feel less There distanced? is definitely a distancing effect, especially with the way that the story has four women characters, so it's like very fractured in the way that it's told, especially that like some stuff is not happening, some stuff you're like, is this a flashback? She uses also that when she's shooting through the television, she takes almost a TV language of like moments very quickly presented in the way that you kind of associated with television storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I found that really fascinating the way that it played out. So Invisible Adversaries from 1977 is her best known film. Mm -hmm. It's been described as a feminist reworking of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which, That's uh, a real stretch. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, if you read synopses for this movie, you think it will be something different than it actually is. Yes. And I, I watched this movie twice, actually. I saw it, you know, two weeks ago mm -hmm. when Stephen Broomer played it and I took a look at it again this morning to sort of try to put it in order. There is no putting it in order. No, there's no putting um, this in order. But I felt more comfortable with that. And I, I like this movie a lot, by the way, I should say. The move, the main character is named Anna. It opens with her awakening in, in downtown Vienna to a radio broadcast warning that undetectable alien beings are inhabiting the bodies of people and altering their minds. Can we just say that this movie is just like visually spectacular at times? Oh, yeah. Specifically, the beginning of this movie, which has a famous shot that starts in a bedroom and then pulls out thanks to I read a helicopter yeah, how it's in the city though it's incredible and it like cir circles it's around a the three the minute plus shot of it like goes from the bedroom out and then across the Vienna skyline. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a reverse of the psycho shot mm. at the beginning of that movie. So anyway, she hears this radio broadcast through these yeah these like little invaders called Hyksos and they inhabit people's bodies and they alter their minds. And is it a radio broadcast? Did she dream it? Well, that becomes one of the many ambiguities of the film. And I think this like invasion of the body snatcher element is kind of in the background too. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't get mentioned that often throughout the film. No, I mean, it comes back a bit at the end, mm -hmm. but the movie is basically about, well, it's about the breakdown of her relationship with her lover, played by Peter Weibel or Vable, who is a... He was a collaborator yeah, with... Yeah, an artist and theorist of great renown. He was a guy on the dog leash. Yes. And he also... See the guy with the bullhorn when she was doing Touch Cinema? I don't know. I don't he, know. I do know that he was the co-writer of the movie that I just mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. So he was very involved with her cinematic works. And, you know, they, I think, had a relationship in real life. So, you know, he... Makes sense. He contributed to the writing of this movie about the relationship falling apart. And so the relationship falling apart is because this guy is a blowhard who won't shut up and he sucks. That's right. And, uh, you know, this alleged invasion by these Hyksos demons is maybe it's an invasion. Maybe she's losing her sanity. Yes. Becoming schizophrenic. Or it, it does. The whole movie is structured like schizophrenia, but also it's structured in kind of like an exhibition mm -hmm. of Valley Exports work because right. like many scenes can almost be disconnected from anything else and be presented as a conceptual piece. And of course, one may watch this movie and ask, is she losing her sanity or is society the insane one? Because the movie is a barbed critique of post-war Viennese culture and politics. So it's this constantly disorienting film. There are 
scenes that play out like very conventional, like back and forth dialogue yeah. sequences that are suddenly interrupted by like violently edited montages. Well, it feels almost like a satirical take on like Godard or like yeah. those art house cinema things where you have like the couple sitting in bed and just having conversations, but then it'll be interrupted with a like high fast montage set to like screeching noise absolutely like well there's one scene where we see her dreaming and like when she dreams the dreams are often like projected above her so she dreams herself walking through vienna wearing ice skates and then there's this rapid montage of like ice skates on ice ice with blood all around them or ice like cutting her hands mm-hmm. and uh you know there's like shots of meat being cut oh yeah that great montage of it's like meat being cut but then it turns into like real animals that are not cut on screen well the fish is the fish is and then you see it's like flopping mouth but there's also a bird and that doesn't there's a bird that looks like it's about to get cut then it cuts to like a mango being cut yeah Yeah. well she loves and she does this in both feature films that i watched you like kind of fading from one object and making a connection into another Mm -hmm. she does it in her art a lot as well and all the movies that we watch like her art is in these movies like the characters are doing her photography as well they see examples of it well yeah there's that scene where like in the middle of the town there are like her like big photo exhibits Mm -hmm. like big cardboard cutouts of of black and white people you know like reality is constantly rupturing like that well there's almost no reality in invisible adversaries that like if you think that you're in some grounded place there'll be something else that you're like wait a minute is this actually happening like when she makes all the marks on her body with a marker and sits in the corner mm-hmm. and then her boyfriend comes and just kisses all of those marks as she looks kind of like angrily onward and i mean it's quite it's like it's shocking but it's also funny at times it like, is funny. like like there's this well you know there's a lot of like quite sexually explicit stuff <laughs> i love the cut speaking of things transitioning into other things of a man's penis pissing on her head oh, yes. and then it cuts to her washing her hands under a faucet yeah that was very quick too they would be like is this well, what i'm seeing yeah exactly it's on screen for like a second and a half yes <laughs> or there's that other bit where it's like there's a normal scene and then it cuts to a close-up of like her bush and she's cutting it yeah and then she's putting it up as a mustache yeah and then and then it cuts to her preparing dinner yeah like a sam raimi style montage like <laughs> like these really <laughs> rapid shots between her like cutting her pubic hair and mm. preparing dinner and like some of what she depicts in these montages is violent but a lot of the shock just comes from the disorientation yeah. of like where was i oh uh, yeah, now i'm here yeah yeah and it's a bit of a shame that she didn't make that many feature films clearly like she probably didn't have an interest like she said everything she had to say in these three i guess well also this first movie invisible avenger a little bit of controversy yeah yeah or sorry invisible adversaries was very controversial because it was publicly funded to some degree and i mean there are some moments that are very like critical of viennese society where for example example there's this one very didactic scene actually where you see a lot of shots of like buildings being demolished oh and, just, and it's like, like cutting with like atrocity footage yeah but also like just like kind of bleak and banal landscapes where on the narration she says worse the effect of like viennese society doesn't value its artists like what are we doing you know mozart's house like the ambassador's mistress is living there and you know they'll just tear down everything and the, the police hate artists and they arrest everyone and and also did you know that all the people who were making nazi propaganda films just went on continuing in the viennese film industry after that and you know apparently this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way it's a fool's errand to like say that this movie like is about one thing and it would be untrue to say that yeah. also in addition to being a fool's errand but one of the things that it communicates is the idea that like this this society is fucked and it's fucked just like 
at its core. And like when I was trying to find a way to connect to this movie, because Viennese politics are not my forte. I mean, I'm just laughing, loving yeah. the edits and the visual. Will's like, I need, I need a way in. Well, like there's a lot I can connect with, but like the political angle, I was trying to think, I was trying to catch up on this a little bit, but it's just like, oh, it's, it's kind of like any country where yeah, it's I was like, going to say, as opposed to Canada, where the artists are treated incredibly well and our culture is held up. And, yeah. And like, it's not like we don't have, you know, yeah. horrible atrocities that immediately, and you know, the same people who commit those atrocities just continue in power and fuck in the United States right now, it's like the whole like managerial class of the country is just like burning ho- down everything around them. Yeah. Hollowing out the yeah. arts industries and like deleting movies for tax write-offs and movies know, with famous characters, and, and, you know, funding genocides overseas. And yep. you know, it's all, it's all fricking fucked. Yeah. I'm, I'm Bill Hicks over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I was listening to Bill Maher, you know, welcome to club random. So, she yeah. continued on after these films and continued to do exhibitions, arts, and like way into the 2010s. Yeah. And I mean, one more feature film, The Practice of Love from 1984, which, you know, I also liked quite a bit, not quite as much as Invisible Adversaries. I mean, it's it's a more, con- well, it's sort of a more conventional film. It's a thriller about... Well, Ooh, a thriller. Thr- thriller. <laughs> I, I, I'm putting, it's always described as a thriller. Yeah. The main character named Judith is a TV journalist who, you know, when we first encounter her, she's doing an expose on like the peep show industry in Vienna that ends up getting kiboshed by her by her employer. And so she finds out about like a murder, an unsolved murder in the Viennese subway. She investigates that, but she finds that there's a link to that between both of her lovers, one of whom's a doctor, one of whom's an industrialist. And she uncovers this whole conspiracy, this gun running conspiracy that encompasses everyone. And it doesn't exactly get solved at the end. And the the movie is quite convoluted and difficult to follow, you know, intentionally, intentionally so, partly because of the style of it. Like so many of the, so many of the images are like mediated by, you know, there's a lot of surveillance footage and the, the movie sort of becomes about how, you know, this woman, it's not really even about the like murder mystery plot. It's about how this woman is like the object of all of these different gazes and narratives you know viennese society and its surveillance stage and its political culture as well as you know these two different relationships in which she's expected to play different roles in those relationships you know sounds good petty stuff it is good yeah Uh, her movies are not that available though no and i'm i'm kind of amazed about that because i do think like the time is ripe and it's also you know for Everything that we said about these movies, they're very approachable and funny. And, you know, she has a place in the artistic canon. Yeah, you say her name, people are like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, and in fact, when we said we were going to do this episode, we had, I think, a higher than usual number of people (laughs) saying, oh, really? Valley Exports? But, like, uh, once you start doing research, it's not like she's a very little documented figure or anything like that. No, no. No, that's the thing. It's like, I think people were kind of surprised and, and happy that we were doing her. But the movies still aren't that well known they're no. not widely available and i don't know i think they I would recommend them they a criterion box set of this would you know do a big difference yeah yeah so yeah so they can do the 10 releases of 4k stuff that me and you are not interested in <laughs> and then we'll buy the valley export box yeah set. and like the thing is you know these are movies that are very much speaking to like the moment that they came out mm. that nevertheless and you know they're very subversive and very they're interventions in those moments but nevertheless the issues are very timeless 
Well, as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Benjamin. And he goes, as somebody who is obsessed with trailers and related ephemera, bumpers, snipes, and theater idents, to the point of reconstructing what would have played before movies during their original theatrical run, what are some of the most memorable trailers, good and bad, you have ever seen? Okay. Mm. The year was 1995. I was six years old. I was going to see Free Willy 2, The Adventure Home. Wow. Big it, screen. Big, big sound. sound. Loved <laughs> it. Love it. And I don't remember too much about the movie, but I do remember the trailer. Batman Forever? Almost as good. Ace Ventura, oh. When Nature Calls. Ace is back. So it, it's the trailer where it's the teaser where it's like Africa, the mm. dark continent. No one would tame it. No one. Guy pulls off tribal mask. But Ace Ventura, <laughs> I'm sitting there, six years old, vibrating. I, cu- I couldn't, I couldn't pay attention to Free Willy Two after that. It was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. There's gonna be another Ace Ventura. And oh. then you saw it, and it lived up to your expectations. It absolutely did. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't care for it much anymore. No, but, not uh, good. Well, it has one of the funniest scenes ever put to film. But the, the rest rhino, of, the yeah. rhino, yeah, yeah, very good. Speaking of body arts and <laughs> right inter- inter- interventions in public space and such, <laughs> that's a, that's a real. What V&E activist artwork Jim Carrey started to go around and do performance art where he came out of the rhino's ass (laughs) naked yeah man you do that in the middle of Vienna in 1968 and uh hey you do it right in the middle of Toronto at Dundas Square me and Will will be there (laughs) smiles on our faces well you gotta be Jim Carrey I don't want any imitators or anything like that do you have any memorable trailers (laughs) nothing that I remember when I was a kid What's your favorite like trailer just as a piece of I love the Cloud Atlas trailer that's five minutes long and I say this as well because I don't like the movie that much. Yeah. So it's one of those rare, like, oh, that trailer, it gets me. But the movie leaves me a little bit cold. Do you think the trailer missells the movie? Nope. I think it sells it very well, but I think it does it in a condensed way. And because it does something that the movie can't do, which is it's for people that don't know, Cloud Atlas has multiple stories that all play concurrently. And the trailer makes it seem like they're going to go back and forth and they're all going to play off of each other. And the movie does not do that consciously so i would say you know obviously the citizen kane trailer or something like that is great but it's like that's <laughs> well a, you were sitting there and oh, a citizen yeah. kane trailer came i was up. like oh my god the guy who panicked the nation with <laughs> the war of the, the worlds world. but that's like a, a short film mm-hmm. like i would suggest go back and take a look at the pulp fiction trailer oh yeah that was great beautifully edited you know really conveys the really conveys the movie yeah i like it when people fire guns and it's time to the music of the trailer it's yeah it's actually an amazing trailer too because like it conveys the movie click but it also like doesn't say what happens in it Mm -hmm. because if it tried to it'd be like uh yeah it's probably not going to be a big success right so let's give a mood and that's That's what people are going to fall in love with i mean i miss trailers that were like original pieces who can forget robin williams coming and ranting at the audience to advertise toys have you not seen that yes of course that one was so infamous that it's parodied in the Simpson episode where Burns comes out and he wants an heir and he like does the whole like in the field Robin Williams thing. <laughs> I think he like dances with some stuff. I completely forget that. But yeah. that's a parody of that toys Robin Williams trailer. That's a movie we have to do for Patreon. Toys? I've never seen it. Yeah, fuck. Oh, uh, you know what? I 
it's not worthless. Oh, okay, there's, yeah. Uh, there's good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other than that, probably Disney animated films. I would be very excited. I remember being very excited for Nightmare Before Christmas when it came out. Yeah. I wonder why, because I didn't even know who Tim Burton was. Maybe it looks spooky. Yeah. But other than that, I'll, I'll think about it. It'd be fun if we did, what if we did an episode on trailers? Yeah. Well, and like, what are they? What are the important ones? Let's like pick top five each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would probably be ones like the classic misdirect trailer. I Kangaroo think, Jack. Kangaroo, okay. I mean, <laughs> rapping and then he doesn't rap yeah, in the movie yeah no i was thinking of like it makes you think it's something else like perhaps a star wars and then it's austin powers oh well yeah that was another good trailer <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah or uh, scooby-doo wait where, i don't remember the trailer there's for Scooby-Doo. a scooby-doo trailer where it's like you think he's batman but it turns out it's scooby-doo mm, classic uhf you think it's indiana jones and it's Weird Al. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And, and then the other ones that are just kind of mood trailers that don't give you too much. Like, is it Alien or Aliens has a trailer kind of like that as yeah. well? So, yeah. you know, all those big ones. Yeah. Trailer episode. I would uh, actually love to do that. Not much work that week either. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We're all, all going to go see Meet Joe Black to see oh, the... A Phantom Menace trailer? And then walk out right after. Wait, the letter continues. Also, the D.W. Griffith episode reminded me that in my first... We did a D.W. Griffith we episode? We did, yeah. That in my first... And we said the South will rise again. <laughs> college film course. In my first college film 101 course, the professor had us read about Bursa of a nation but not watch it amongst the reasons rattled off it's three hours long it's incredibly racist and you can get it from the school library if you're curious in lieu of showing burst of a nation he showed raul walsh's 1915 gangster melodrama regeneration not a great film but it has incredible historical value being shot on location in the bowery with a lot of real residents in minor and supporting roles i still to this day have not seen burst of a nation in full but i occasionally show people regeneration for its connection to both film and new york city history i haven't seen it it sounds great sounds great yeah you know what you don't need to watch birth of a nation i wouldn't tell people not to watch it i said you don't need to right that's different right you know what i enjoy intolerance more than i enjoy birth of a nation no so do i i mean birth of a nation has like a couple of like pretty amazing scenes Mm. but but i mean it's it's the but i'm gonna be honest damn racist if a professor was going i'm gonna give you a deep cut instead of birth of a nation as a student, that's what yeah. I would want. Yeah, like I feel like if you're doing a one-on-one course, you kind of have to talk about Birth of a Nation a little bit because like, you do. it was influential. You can show clips from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like its shadow looms very large. But no, I wouldn't make a whole class watch all three hours of mm. it. You know? it. That really stinks of like, I need to fill some time. Let's throw th- throw this up. We're watching Bicycle Sieves next week. <laughs> so thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Kevin. And he goes, how to prioritize watch lists. I got a few different physical media releases for Christmas, and I spent the whole first month of the year trying to figure out where to begin. The Marx Brothers Paramount Collection, the Vinegar Syndrome Lost Picture Show, and the Ron Orman box from Indicator. They are all new to me, except the Marx Brothers, which I've mostly only seen those once save Duck Soup, which I have memorized. And given that you've talked about these topics and or box sets on here and on Patreon before, where do you recommend starting? Only things I've seen are the exotic ones, Please Don't Touch Me, Las Vegas Strangler. And to continue on a broader topic, how do you deal with having an overwhelming amount of films you want to see and don't know how to prioritize them? I usually go back to watching an old Hollywood film when I can't pick. But I want to be more conscious of watching a wider range of films this year. Let me know how you guys know what to prioritize when you're watching them. Best wishes, Kevin. How do you prioritize movies, Will? Well, first, I think, what do I need to watch for my podcast, Empire? And yes. then I do that. 
and then you have four movies to watch per week minimum minimum and you know that's great because this little podcast empire of ours you know as we've talked about uh, our our like programming of it it'll often be like okay we've done this kind of thing now let's do the opposite kind of thing and mm-hmm. then let's do the opposite kind of thing to that so it keeps us on our toes a little bit you know i do sort of envy people who don't have a podcast empire to constantly fill because like they can really do like all these deep dives like you get the box set you can have a lot maybe theoretically you could have a lot of time you no can, one does it oh, no, no one does that it. yeah no one what, watches all the movies of a box wouldn't set. It, what, okay wouldn't it be nice theoretically to like let's say okay i've got my ron orman box set for the next month however long it takes all i'm watching is ron orman Nobody does that. No, I'm checking my head that I wouldn't do that. You need you need the spice of different stuff playing off each other. Yeah. Because that's the only way that you will understand the good and bad parts of different things is by kind of tasting everything. Anytime I get depressed and I watch a bunch of kung fu films, it just makes me sadder because yeah. it's like it's like eating can- it's like eating too much candy. And then and then yeah, you're right. If you watch a lot of different kind of things, then like your brain makes connections. Yep, exactly. And, uh, you see things in new ways, and you want to be like, oh, I want to watch this, and then because I saw this, and it you know it may not be like a straight line, but I think that the more you watch and the more different stuff you watch, the more you'll get out of them now how do you prioritize it Again, vibe yeah vibe i would say try to challenge yourself and just go like okay i watch this is there anything different than this than i can watch mm-hmm. now that's easy if you just watch something oftentimes you're like oh i haven't watched anything in a long time where do i start letterbox has a watch list now personally my watch is not that big i actually remove movies i was like it's been on here for months it's gone because i ain't watching it and I want these to be immediate. And there's a little function if you go to the top in the drop down called shuffle. Hit that shuffle and it'll shuffle your watches. Watch whatever's at the top. That's how I do <laughs> That's it. That's a great idea. Yeah. I have nothing to add. Just randomize it. Yeah. People were actually talking about this in the Discord that you just like randomize. Like you can go online and type like five movies and just do a randomizer. That's how you decide. You know what? Yeah. I also think you're right. The last thing I'll say is, you know, you've got that Marx Brothers box set. If you watch all five Marx Brothers movies in a row, you're going to get sick of the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. It's nice to watch one, yeah. then come back to them in a week, in a month. And then they're always there for you. And they're always fresh. To be more specific, where do you start with Ron Orman? Just pick any movie. It doesn't matter. I disagree. If Footmen Tire You, what yeah, will yeah, horses do? But we know that. But like on this box set, from there onward, like the exotic ones, just, please don't yeah, touch me. D- dive in. Yeah, just dive. Watch they're, one. They're all good. <laughs> watch one. Think about it. Go watch something else. Then come back to it. Yeah. And then, you know, you can have many projects on the go and it will just be more of an enriching experience. So again, thank you for the letter. And you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week? Will we are returning <laughs> well, and, and we're we, sorry. And we're sorry. We have good reason though. Listen, we were talking about Valley export. So talking about the opposite yes because that is our vibe we're Wait, take a take a pause what could we possibly say that we're going to talk about you are correct it's kevin smith <laughs> it's kevin smith folks we're talking about him again but hey we have good reason to because we watched his never released nft movie the movie aka the movie that was maybe so bad that he couldn't mm-hmm. release it so he released it as an nft kilroy was here now we get pretty angry on this episode, so... Is it angry because we loved it so much? And we were like, why can't more people see this? Well, you have to You'll listen have to, to it to out. find out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. All right, what are we doing next week? 
next week. So recently I was talking to someone who was discussing Roman Polanski's The Palace. What is The Palace for people that don't know, Will? Well, I think you pretty much said it all there. It's the new Roman Polanski film. Yeah, it's, but uh, it's hideous. I mean, it's, it's an incredible object, honestly. It's a, it's a comedy. I mean, it's not funny. No. It's... There's no movie that looks quite like it. It's sad. It, it's sad. It's ugly. It's ex, it's an extraordinary thing. Yes. <laughs> and it's perfect for bad man Roman Polanski making a movie like that, probably as his last film. Yeah. I mean, look, we all agree he's a bad man. I would have loved to have gotten another masterpiece out of him. <laughs> the man made Chinatown. The man made Rosemary's Baby. You know? Yeah, well, Is you it, know. He made hell, Chaos? You're thinking Carnage. Yeah. Or even the one he made last, based on a true story, the Driver's Fair one. Good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, it's all right. This, this one. Oh, hideous. Car crash. Uh, but the person I was talking to said the movie was written by one of Polanski's longtime collaborators. The writer of Knife in the Water. I could not believe it. And that writer and director, boy, I've been trying to avoid his name, but Will will jump on this grenade. Well, it's spelled Jersey Skolomowski. But it's not. But it's, it's, it's pronounced Jersey. It's pronounced Jersey. Jersey. I'm sorry. I'm actually not trying to make fun of a Polish name. No, we're not. We're just trying to say it. Pronounce it, and hopefully we'll have it mastered for the next one. But but, (laughs) don't hold your breath. But listen, recently he had a big art house hit with EO. Mm -hmm. But he's been around for a long time. He has a fascinating career that you don't hear people talk about that much even though that like some of his movies are considered like great masterpieces like deep end which i remember reading about in danny perry's cult movies and being like wow and for a long time was unavailable it was one of those like never made it to physical media movies not the case anymore i believe it's still available and then he also has other films like the shout he made two vincent badman gallo movies too yeah moonlighting and essential killing we'll also we'll take a look at one of his polish movies at least yeah walk hour walk over yeah oh uh, sorry i was reading the polish title which is walk hour boy I, man there's gonna be a lot of us trying to pronounce stuff next uh, episode goodness just two bozos for the podcast but yeah the shout and deep end is probably the other ones that we're gonna watch but like just looking at his film career what a, what is king queen nov it looks like a like sex comedy that was made in 1972 oh wow and and of course, we all know him playing a gangster in Joss Whedon's The Avengers, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which if you look at his acting credits, that's the number one that comes up. So that's who we'll be talking about next week. Jose Skolimowski. Uh, again, next week you'll hear us pronounce it right. Or not. No. no. I think I'm going to... Can we give him a nickname like uh, Jerry Scully? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll call him. Okay, Jerry Scully next week. And until then... My name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include David Monk, Greg Moeller, Mark Harper, Alan Butt, Ari Rosner, Peter, Frank Ritz, Ben Natto, Nick V, Flower, Invalidity, Colin, Kieran Casey, Tom Meager, Alex Rose, Yevin Gordon, Kevin Shaughnessy, Kemble McClure, Turbo Snore, BK, Juan Matoa, and Jeremy Singsong. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, last night I had a great time at the movies. Wow, what'd you see? I went to the Kingsway Cinema. <laughs> oh, oh, you you explored joysticks? Yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, wait, wait. You said great time at the movies. I, I've seen joysticks. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen it on 35mm film, have you? No, I have not. So, so for those who don't know, Joysticks is directed by Graydon Clark. Has Have we threatened doing an episode on him? 
you know, I'm sure it's come up, but the thing is, his filmography is just so damn bad. <laughs> it is, but he's got a lot of stuff. Black Shampoo. Oh, Satan's Cheerleaders. What is the one that, like, Shout Factory keeps putting out on Blu-ray over and over again with the flying thing with teeth? Oh, is it The Uninvited? No, The Uninvited is a cat within a cat movie. God, he's got, what a career this uh, man so, had. So, uh, Wacko, of course, yes. the Jodon Baker horror comedy. Uh, Final Justice, the Mystery Science Theater classic. Jodon Baker again. And wait, what's this? Jodon Baker's in Joysticks as well. Yeah, the third, the first of the three collaborations. So, Joysticks... And again, I saw this on 35 millimeter film last night. Without warning, that's the one about the like little thing that fly through mm. the air, which is also most famous for starring Jack Palance, Martin Landau, you know, <laughs> Nabil Brand. Yeah, so Graydon Clark has a great filmography because you know he's an exploitation guy, but unlike you know people like Wes Craven or Larry Cohen or John Carpenter or any of those any of the big like you know grindhouse guys, he doesn't have any good ones. No, he <laughs> they're, doesn't. They're all they're all bad. He has films that people are nostalgic for yes and that's pretty much yes. it and so this one joysticks which of course i had seen before a yeah. long time ago but i saw it again last night because this is what i love about the king's way who else is showing joysticks on 35 millimeter joysticks is a titty comedy from the 80s like the most base like version you know the runoff of the runoff of animal house <laughs> now, uh, yeah the runoff of screwballs yeah it's set at an arcade wait and, so this is the one because i have the dvd of this there's a I, part of right, course you do. where the lady grabs the guy's dick thinking it's a joystick Oh, is he hiding in the arcade machine? Fuck. I mean, did you pass out? I the, might, the pleasure was, was I in the bathroom over? during that scene? Jacking off because <laughs> <laughs> of all the boobs on display. Because I see the poster is him hiding inside of yeah. it as well. But maybe I'm confusing that with Porky's. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I, well, listen, the fact that the idea of the joystick as something that could be grasped upon like yes. a penis is not lost on this film. <laughs> okay. It comes up over and over again. But yeah, it's this arcade, this cool place where everyone hangs out. And, you know, the heroes, like there's a there's a cool kid, there's a nerd kid, and there's a John Belushi kid. You know, a real, a real what was his name in Animal House? Did he have an iconic name or was he just John Belushi? Uh, it's not Otter, was it? That was another Animal House I, guy. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He, there, People are yelling there, right now. There's a, there's a fat guy who farts. And, <laughs> and so it has all those and all these people from different strata of society. This is what I really like about the movie are all together at this arcade. Mm. But there's a man who will not take this. It's Jodon Baker as a local dignitary. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing looking up Animal House. And the questions is like, how did John Belushi stay in Animal House? I don't know. Watch the movie. It'll give you the answer. <laughs> Yeah, right, because wasn't he there? It was like, oh, eight years down the drain. That's yeah, the yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, in Joysticks, yeah, John Bluto. Uh, sorry. That's who it was. Bluto, yeah. In Joysticks, Jodon Baker is, he's John Vernon in Animal House. Yeah. He's John Lithgow in Footloose. He's Joysticks. We gotta, we gotta stop the arcade. And the kids are like, no, we gotta save the arcade. And this movie is so stupid. It's it's. I remember, isn't there a teenager that has sex with like Jodon Baker's wife oh, at one point? is there? ever yeah and oh yeah there's a whole farce scene where it's like the fat kid and the nerd kid are like for some reason like sneaking into his house and, they, and like he they, gets into bed and his some, wife is like some, i'm feeling horny some light sexual assault humor yeah that's what happens as there always is in these movies Ugh. but yeah she he goes into the bed and the wife who's sort of like half asleep is like touching him classic like, orangutan style confusion and then of course jodon baker walks in and puts on his pajamas but he doesn't notice that the guy's in bed anyway jodon baker in this movie i think is very good <laughs> okay he actually has jodon baker ever given a bad performance 
I don't think so. Because he's one of those guys, right? He's he present. Rocks. Yeah. People make fun of Joe Don Baker, but fuck those people. Joe Don Baker rules. He always brings it. And in this movie, he yeah, no, he he shows up. He's funny. He's has gravitas. I, I, and he's also, importantly, in the movie all the way through. Oh, because it keeps showing up. He keeps showing up. People are like, we need Joe. There's it Joe. It wasn't just a one-day wonder performance. No, Well, because he was a great and Clark regular. Like, he's in Wacko. And Final Justice was kind of like one of the last Joe Don Baker vehicles mm. where he got to be, you know, walking tall again, basically. Joe Don did make three Graydon Clark movies, though. Mm. Yeah, like Final Justice, Wacko, and and this. And, Joysticks. Uh, now, would you say Joysticks is his pinnacle in that trilogy? I mean, probably were- yeah, yeah, I mean, they're all bad, but yeah. but yeah, Joysticks is the one that I would want to watch again, mm-hmm. you know? Did you feel nostalgic about the arcade? Because there were arcades when we were around yeah, when we were kids. a little bit. They look gross in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the whole movie just has kind of grime all over it. But mm, the Graydon Clark touch. It has a certain joyous energy God, to it. We could easily do a Graydon Clark episode, like Black Shampoo, Joysticks, The Forbidden Dance right. is Lombada. Oh, man. Okay, after Jose, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're let's doing do Graydon Clark. Clark. <laughs> yeah, let's do it, honestly. Now, are you going to pull up his biography that he wrote and give it a read mm. <laughs> he might have good stories yeah he might whenever i've seen Graydon clark interviewed he always, he's great he's great but he's a little full of himself that's what i mean he's full of himself like a lot of like i was working on this film because i believe he worked with al adamson a bunch right yes and he's like i could direct this in my sleep like i saw Graydon clark in that documentary 42nd street memories yeah. all about the grindhouse theaters in new york and he was talking about the theaters and he said something like you know there were some theaters kind of on one end of the strip that would show some of the higher level exploitation films you know like sort of the films i was making <laughs> it's like oh yeah you have to you have to insert that don't you it's like oh well, you of course, I was making the good ones. No, you weren't. <laughs> I know that Mike White of the Projection Boost is obsessed with black shampoo. Yeah. So, like, I've never seen, seen it. it. Maybe there's something there. Let's, well, I can't wait for this. <laughs> All right. So, Grant Clark coming back up. And maybe I'll watch Joysticks again. <laughs> Don't make me, please. I, I wish you were there last night. You would have had fun. <laughs> I did know some friends who were going to go to it. And I spoke to them and they were like, eh, I don't need to see Joysticks. <laughs> but Will, Will was there. Big smile on his face. <laughs>